good day to all of you who are taking uh, of our podcast today, Culture Speaks. I'm George Papianis uh, in the basement studios of UNESCO in Paris. I have to say, I don't know if I've ever talked about these studios, but uh, they go back to the 1950s. And maybe one day we'll post some photographs of this place because I would have to say that this is one beautiful space in which to do a radio broadcast and a great day for us today at UNESCO on this, the 18th of January, where uh, it's going to be a special day. We're designating the first world capital of architecture. Now, I'm not going to keep this a secret. I'm not going to hold it away from you. I'm going to be actually quite upfront. It's Brazil's Rio de Janeiro. Now, we're not alone on this. Uh, we're in partnership with an old friend, the International Union of Architects. And um, we've been playing since 1956. And joining me today to bring it all into focus is Thomas Vonier, president of the International Union of Architects. Thomas, welcome to UNESCO and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, George. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, and it is a fantastic building. Um, the studios are lovely, but the building itself is the building, also extraordinary. It's true. It's very true. I was looking at um, uh, an aerial photo of that was actually not that I saw here. I forget where I was. It was just recently. And it was an aerial photo taken uh, looking north, but it captured this building. And one of the things that, that I love about this building is that you see this in, in an you know, in a neighborhood. We're in a neighborhood. And it's not a small building. No. But its profile is so unassuming. Yet, it is. And yet, it has a certain transparency. And exactly. Elevation to and elevation. Light, lightness. Right. Yeah, all exactly. Of all of those things. Because, I mean, we're right next to Ecole Militaire. That's right. So this is a building that's what, Ecole Militaire is 200-something years old, I'm yeah. sure. Um, and yet they don't, they don't harass each other. No, I agree with that. So uh, uh, kudos to the architects who worked on, on, on this structure and, as I said, a beautiful space for us here. But, Thomas, we're, uh, we're in the middle of, uh, well, about to get started on, on this designation. Uh, it's going to be official today. And I, I, I guess to start things off is, you know, what is a world capital of architecture and, and, and why Rio? Well, the International Union of Architects is the only global organization that represents the world's 3.2 million architects. And we date back to 1948. We celebrated our 70th year last year. And um, the UIA uh, really is interested in speaking about the power of architecture to address uh, human issues and the problems that our planet faces. We have two, uh, I think, that are principal today. One of them is the destruction of habitat and the forms of development that uh, damage so much of the planet, uh, much of it automobile dependent. And the other is the sort of overwhelming scale of human need, uh, much of it concentrated in cities. And so we're looking for ways to bring public attention to the ways in which architecture can address those problems. Now, every three years, we hold a World Congress of Architecture. That's where the world's architects all come together. We were in Seoul, uh, South Korea, uh, three years ago. 
and we will be in Rio in 2020. So we thought with UNESCO, what better way to bring attention to architecture and its ability to address contemporary problems than to designate a place as a world capital for the period preceding and following our World Congress. And what better place than Rio, uh, which really does encapsulate so many of the issues and opportunities that face cities all around the world. Well, it's, it, it certainly is a city that is challenged by, by um, an ex expansive population uh, and perhaps even is a city that represents what, what is going to be the, uh, the challenges that, uh, that cities are going to face. We're looking at mega cities That's right. happening in the next decade to two decades. Cities, uh, as migration happens and there is a movement we could see, what, half the world's population living in cities? Uh... Uh, George, it's probably more than that. Uh, satellite imagery uh, in recent years suggests to some analysts that it's as much as 65% of the planet's population in cities. And places like Rio are places of opportunity for people. That's uh, where the work is. It's where education is uh, for the most part. So this migration to cities is occurring all over the planet, not just in South and Central America, but certainly on the African continent and parts of Asia. So these, um, these megacities, as you describe them, are uh, really the way of the future and um, places that really must be um, addressed uh, where, where the conditions I spoke about are, are very evident. Well, then, then what does it mean to be an architect in, at, this, at this time in history? Well, I think uh, we've seen very creative approaches. You know, a place like Nairobi, Kenya, uh, about 70% of the population lives in what are called slums, places they build for themselves uh, with materials they scavenge um, any, any place they can. And so it's a reasonable question. What does an architect have to do with that? But we have um, architects like Alejandro Aravena from Chile who have uh, used their skills to make sort of basic infrastructure for these urban settlements that are informal, um, that are not really uh, planned in a sense, uh, that allows people to build for themselves at the pace they can with what they can, uh, but provides basic sanitation and potable water and basic infrastructure. So I think um, that's one way in which architecture addresses these problems. Another is looking at the sort of automobile-dependent patterns that are so dominant uh, throughout the world and trying to reverse this um, attempt to make everything cater to automobiles uh, and instead to favor other forms of transportation, including walking, uh, which is a very difficult problem in the developing world. Um, there are very few facilities for people who walk. So I think urban planners and architects have an enormous contribution to make in this area, and uh, that's what we hope to highlight with the world capital of architecture. All right, so we're talking about mobility, we're talking about housing, but are we also, how do we address livability? Yeah. How do we make a city a place that inspires people, you know, where there is an urban landscape that is available, accessible, um, where going out and walking 
is not only about getting from point A to point B, but also potentially a, a way in which we are inspired to be part of that day. I think that's right, and, and I think that is forgotten. So much of what we focus on is the functional and utilitarian, and we forget, let's say, the, the side of beauty and uh, inspiration, to use your word. Uh, we should remember that public parks, uh, public recreation facilities, are part of the infrastructure that urban centers must have to make life uh, better for all people. And a place like Paris, which we're in now, uh, when Haussmann and Alphon uh, planned, they thought very carefully about questions having to do with this livability, as you describe it. And looking through some of the discussions they had at the time, there were even questions about how far should a mother with two children be expected to walk to go to the store? How far away should people live from a park where they can go outdoors and enjoy the weather when it's, when it's clement? So these basic questions about livability have always been a part of sort of the, the tradition of urban thinking in, in architecture and urban design, uh, but have been forgotten, I think, in recent decades and have to come back. And this is another area of contribution. Do we, ha do we have to rethink, in a way, our concept of, of the city where you had uh, the, the so-called downtown, where business was, where shopping was? I mean, you mentioned, the, you mentioned Hausman, and if you look at, at the city of Paris, I think the concept was also that, that you would have everything in an arrondissement and within an arrondissement, yeah. these, these, these quarters of, of the city of which there are 20 in Paris. Yeah, um, even though um, we in the United States live in a very automobile-dependent culture, there is evidence that that's changing. Um, when real estate companies start advertising scores on the walkability index as a sort of feature of a property, uh, when people are buying automobiles at the lowest rates in generations, uh, when focus on public transport and on bicycle paths becomes sort of a predominant discussion in cities like Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, even Los Angeles. That's evidence that there's a shift in public thinking about how cities ought to respond to, to human needs and human requirements. I guess let, let's peel the onion a little bit about, about what is an architect. I mean, you know, is she an artist? Uh, is he a designer? Uh, are, are, they, are they interpreters of a society's aspirations, achievements? Uh, what is an architect? Well, yes to all of those. Uh, I think yes to all of those. I think a humanist, for sure, um, humanist sensibilities and uh, a certain sensitivity to human requirements and, and the daily stuff of life. But we're also uh, technicians and, um, to some extent, scientists. And so the, the art and the humanism is balanced with more technical considerations. Engineers. And engineering considerations. I, I think the most successful architects combine all of those things. And um, many of them also have a sensibility about urban culture and ways of life and a real appetite for learning about 
how different cultures respond to the built environment. I grew up. I grew up in New York City. Uh, I've lived in in a number of cities around the world: Berlin, um, uh, Paris, uh, Amman, Baghdad. You know, one of the things that I I, I recall, uh, in fact, living in uh, when I was in Baghdad, was how much the architecture of that city reflected Saddam Hussein. It was uh, it was it was architecture that I would say that was at times intimidating. Mm. You know, we're living in Berlin uh, post the uh, fall of the wall, there, were, there was a difference between West Berlin and, and, and East Berlin. These are, you know, th- there are contrasts, um, again, looking at Berlin, two cities uh, or two parts of a city with vastly, at times, different architecture, uh, different, uh, different ideas or reflections on, on who we are or what we want it to be. Um, and then, and of course, you know, even seeing things like um, the television tower in East Berlin, this massive structure overlooking, overlooking West Berlin at the time when it was built. Um, so architects are interpreting uh, uh, who we are. They're taking us to a place. Um, are they often also challenging us? I mean, I think about um, about uh, some of the uh, recent work by Frank Gehry, you know, uh, this uh, twisted titanium. Uh, you know, I was just in New York um, uh, a few, uh, few days ago, and I was going back and forth. Uh, I grew up in Chelsea, and I was I was going downtown to uh, to do some work, and you know that building, that high rise there that he's got. Um, I mean, is that a challenge to us, or is, is that a reflection, or is that a statement about where we're going? Well, I think it's a reflection of, of a culture of excess to some degree. Um, I think some of these projects that we've seen, his, his museum here in Paris in mm-hmm. the Bois de Boulogne, mm-hmm. a beautiful object in the landscape, very beautifully executed, but in a sense uh, full of caprice and arbitrariness. He himself uh, explains what he does simply by saying, it's because I like it. I like the way it looks. Um, so that's one end of the spectrum, I would say, and, and there are others in that, in that camp, and I, I think they do challenge our perceptions, our ideas about what constitutes space about how buildings might respond to to functional requirements but we also have many uh, practitioners of the art and science of architecture who are uh, very disciplined in the execution of a, of a building that responds to functional requirements and the demands of use you see that um, principally in in buildings that have um, high purpose hospital buildings, uh, other buildings that are trying to execute a mission of some kind, not so much a cultural expression, but something that is responding to to a very narrow set of requirements. And there, I think, uh, you see innovation, you see attempts to redefine, attempts to improve. And I think in my generation um, of architects, we've come to realize that uh, the way buildings are affects the way people behave, uh, even such things as health. I mean, there's now a body of research that shows that simple things like having a view of the out-of-doors, uh, having access to daylight can affect 
rates of recovery in cases of illness or performance in testing in educational environments. So I think we're, we're developing an appreciation uh, of how buildings help people be better and do better. Uh, and, and that's important, I think, and not so much uh, an expression of, of um, artistic impulse, but rather a, a desire to, uh, to have buildings improve the human condition. Talking with Tom Vonier, who is the president of the International Union of Architects, this is Culture Speaks. I'm George Papianis. Uh, don't forget to, um, uh, to find us uh, on uh, iTunes. Where, uh, where we have a, a, a hot spot and uh, a great place for you to download, uh, download our podcast. Our, our hashtag is uh, hashtag culture speaks if you want to be part of the conversation and, uh, and comment on what we're doing and uh, even give us a little bit of a, of a critique. We're always open to uh, hearing people's opinions and we want to make our program as enjoyable, as informative, and as fun as possible as well. Uh, Tom, one of the things that that, of course, uh, within the, the UN jargon is uh, the conversation of the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, sometimes known as uh, the Global Goals or the Agenda 2030. Yep. Um, and habitat, livability, all of these things are, are integral, I think, to achieving that uh, 2030 agenda. Um, how are architects... Or maybe I start from our architects um, thinking about these issues of sustainability within the context of, of some of the things that we've already been talking about, but also within the context of being part of this, of this global effort to make the world a, uh, sustainable for the future. Because in many ways, architects also have an influence on, on the use of energy. Um, we've had, uh, you know, buildings uh, that um, are more energy efficient, more more green. Um, that is a result of architects, I think, incorporating uh, the understanding that that there's much more that we need to be doing yeah. in order to ensure the sustainability of the planet I think and that's humanity. Right. I, I think architects have embraced fully the 17 sustainable development goals uh, of the United Nations and. And the Habitat New Urban Agenda, I think, is um, fully understood and fully supported by architects all around the world. And I'm in a position to actually say that. Um, I have some appreciation for it. Um, I spoke earlier about the two challenges we face, um, this destruction of habitat and the overwhelming character of human need on a planet of some 7.5 billion people. We've got probably a billion people who are living on the margins, uh, truly on the margins, scavenging food, scavenging shelter, uh, and, and exposed to the elements for the most part. And those elements are changing, partly as a result of the kind of development that we experience. Um, so I think my profession, among a number of others, uh, very much recognizes the need to do better uh, in our execution of buildings and the planning of our, our environments, um, our cities in particular. And so these uh, goals of the United Nations, I think, are um, an expression of international support and recognition of the need for um, changing uh, 
our development patterns and, and building in a responsible, sustainable manner. Um, we're doing much better. Um, the American Institute of Architects, that's uh, some nearly 100,000 architects in the United States, uh, have embraced the 2030 agenda. There's a, a carbon net zero uh, objective which the profession is seeking to uh, achieve by 2030. Uh, I think other associations around the world are attempting to do the same thing. And I think there's a growing uh, recognition among clients for buildings that they share in that responsibility. But is this a, uh, is this a global uh, embrace? Are, are, are architects in, 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 in what are some of the expected megacities like Nairobi, for example, also thinking about these, uh, uh, these issues or in, or in Lagos? Um, Everyone's trying. I think, I think there is a, a, a global recognition, and we are a global community. It's, it's um, kind of a revelation to me as president of this international organization, the level of commonality. Um, I was recently in Kenya with the Architects Association of Kenya. Uh, Nairobi is a growing city, a huge city. Uh, and there's a real attempt there to, to try and reinforce these ideas about building responsibly and about trying to reduce the pollution that's generated uh, simply by human activity. Uh, so I do think it's a global uh, issue. Uh, China is a, another place that's uh, embracing uh, approaches. I mean, yes, they have, they have a huge coal electricity generating industry in China, and that's, that's a problem, uh, and it's certainly contributing to emissions. On the other hand, they're doing many things at the urban planning scale and with their vehicle and transit systems to try and reduce the climatic burdens that come from, from their enormous population in their new cities. I want to, I guess, uh, maybe change gears just a little bit because of the um, significance that we see um, in terms of world heritage and architectural heritage, so much of world heritage is architectural heritage. Uh, how, how do we strike that balance between conservation of this heritage with development? Not very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're uh, you know we're we're here to talk about the world capital of architecture, and and I think Rio is a, a wonderful example of a place that. Um, has a vibrant population, a growing population, a huge tourism industry, and a number of monuments that are challenged uh, by that, and, and a sort of historic uh, landscape that's challenged by that. There are many places in the world that are really burdened now by tourism, and I, I, I mean mass tourism. Uh, we hear about Venice and Barcelona in the news, but there are many, many other places on the planet where the heritage that people are coming to see and admire is being destroyed by the very fact that people are coming to see it. Um, the, the phrase you hear is that your, your dream vacation is my nightmare, uh, and that's you know, something that, that uh, residents of many cities can say. Even Paris, even parts of Paris are just overwhelmed and, and uh, you know, kind of harmed by the influx of tourists. 65.2 yeah. million yeah. tourists visited New York City last year. Yeah. And, and you can see in certain neighborhoods in New York City, especially around Times Square, but not only, that the entire apparatus is kind of given over to this transient population. And 
It has a certain character and utility all of its own, but as a place to live, um, that, that isn't a whole lot of fun. Uh, we're going to host, the International Union of Architects is going to host a forum uh, this year in June on the subject of mass tourism and architectural heritage. And we're trying to promote a system that would reward and recognize places uh, of historic significance, cities as well as sites and monuments that implement programs to do better in sustainable tourism and to try and counteract some of these pernicious uh, forces. Um, you can see uh, in a place like Paris on the Rue de Rivoli, which many people visit because it's where the Louvre is, uh, all of the retail is given over to basically trinket and junk shops. Um, any kind of indigenous industry or commerce that serves the local population has long since disappeared, uh, making it, you know, a very uh, unattractive place to live. Um, as, as a daily kind of routine. You have, you have none of your services. None. Uh, and so there's that. Uh, the other part of it, of course, is that uh, you see it, especially in a place like Venice, where the public transit system is completely overwhelmed by tourists and people who live there, the few who are remaining, um, can't even take public transit uh, reliably because of the, because of the overwhelming kind of influence of tourism. So I think your question about heritage and how we're doing to protect it uh, and, and to kind of uh, enhance its conditions is one of uh, uh, real challenges we face as a society, as societies throughout the, the world, and uh, certainly a challenge to us as professionals, as architects. Take me into the future. Yeah. Okay. What are you seeing as the next trends in the world of architecture, especially when we come to um, sustainable development, urban planning, the, the challenges that we face. How do you think architects will respond? Well, I think what part of what's happening is we're returning to old ways. I, I think the resurgence of bicycling um, is, is something that sort of indicates that we're looking at things that were abandoned for a couple of generations that made a lot of sense. Um, that are returning uh, or being reinforced uh, in places. And you see it uh, in, in uh, the abandonment of plastic bags for shopping. I, you know, I remember when I first came to France in the late 60s, everybody had the ficelle, you know, the little shopping bag that was folded up and in their pocket or in their purse or something of that nature. Uh, that disappeared with the advent of plastic bags. It's now coming back. And so some of the future, I think, is a return to ways that made sense and that were prudent and kind of responsible. Uh, I think lighter weight building systems is something uh, of great interest. I think some of the high strength materials that you see in avionics and aviation um, uh, will, and in automotives will come to the building industry. They already have to some degree. Uh, there, I know that there are transit projects um, in New Jersey, uh, California, a couple of other places in the United States where instead of building heavy bridges, they're talking about using gondolas and, and sort of lightweight transit systems to move people rather than building things for automobiles and trucks. So I think we'll see more exploitation of lighter 
faster, less expensive building systems. Um, then there's the whole uh, sort of digital revolution uh, being applied to urban resources, and, and that's everything from dispatching uh, buses uh, to meet demand instead of having fixed schedules that use the same size vehicle all the time at a fixed interval, timing things and dispatching them to meet the demand that's present just by remote sensing. Uh, I think there are a whole host of um, smart technologies or intelligent technologies that will have application in urban environments. World capitals of architecture are going to be part of this conversation, aren't they? I think that's part of the reason for the designation, yeah. uh, to, uh, to be hubs for, uh, for discussion, uh, to, uh, to get people thinking and uh, recognizing the challenges. So I guess we're going to be looking to Rio yeah. uh, to set the standard. Yes, uh, July 2020 is when we're going to have our conference. We expect uh, starting uh, late this year and, and into uh, well through 2020, uh, Rio is going to be highlighting several things. One, the, the wonderful heritage that it does have. There's a modernist tradition in Rio that um, actually is reflected in this building in some ways, in, in the UNESCO building. Uh, because some of the progenitors of this kind of building uh, came from Brazil and exercised in Brazil, especially in Brasilia, but also in Rio uh, and its environs. So there's a lot there in terms of mid-century modern heritage. Um, then there's the wonderful geography of the city itself, the extraordinary beauty of the, the landscape and the sea and all of that and what it generates as a style of living, as a style of architecture. And uh, then the favelas and the enormous poor populations that are there in um, not always squalid conditions, but difficult conditions and conditions that need to be ameliorated. And so all of these factors, I think, indicate that as a world capital of architecture, Rio is a wonderful choice. Congratulations, Rio. Yes. Tom Vonier, thank you so much. George, it's been a pleasure. For being a part of Culture Speaks here at UNESCO. Thank you. Much appreciated. Tom Vonier is the uh, president of the International Union of Architects. And I know that you mentioned that you spent a lot of time in Paris. I would love to have you back to talk a bit about uh, the work that you do in security and architecture. It sounded very fascinating. Well, uh, something that uh, perhaps uh, we, can, uh, we can look forward to planning on. I'd like to do and, that. And have a conversation on, on what that means. Um, and again, congratulations to Rio Tomvonia. Thank you very much. And to all of you who have been part of our conversation, don't forget, uh, you'll find us on iTunes. And uh, also don't forget to uh, be part of the conversation. Hashtag Culture Speaks at UNESCO is our Twitter account. Tom Vonier, again, thank you very much, and have a great day to everybody wherever you may be.